Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Galatians, starting in chapter 6, verses 11 to 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh flesh, who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of Christ our Lord, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, sisters and brothers. Amen. The word of the Lord. Well, this morning we are finishing uh, our series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. Uh, We've been in this letter for quite a while. And if you were with us at the very beginning, uh, you may remember that we said this letter is like a tornado siren. If you've lived in St. Louis for any length of time, you know every once in a while you'll hear a loudspeaker and a voice that says, warning, danger. And you know when you hear that voice, to pay attention to that voice. Uh, Paul is warning the Christians in Galatia. This whole letter is a warning to them that they are in profound spiritual danger. And the language he uses throughout the whole letter is very urgent. And again, here at the very end of the letter, in the very last passage, Paul is using urgent language. He's giving us a recap of the whole message of the letter in order to call the Galatians back to the one primary question that this whole letter is all about. The whole letter to the Galatians is all about one huge question. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Paul is saying in this letter that if you get it, if you understand it, if you embrace it, if you take it into your life, that it will absolutely transform you. But if you miss it, or if you forget it, or if you reject it, it will ruin you. It's a a warning. It's a wake-up call. It's a tornado siren not to miss the gospel. And so in this letter, and especially once again at the very end of this passage, Paul is giving us a recap. Don't miss the essence of the gospel. Here's what it's all about. What is the gospel all about? Well, let's do a thought experiment to get back at this question one more time. Um, I want to ask you a question. This is probably the most intimate, um, most vulnerable, most um, deeply personal question that any of us could possibly wrestle with. This is a question that um, drives many of you to um, overwork or to push yourselves to exhaustion. It's also the same question that would drive others of us to things like, Um, eating disorders or addictive behavior. What's the question? The question is, do I matter? Does my life have worth, value, 
and meaning and significance? Am I loved? Am I appreciated? Am I affirmed? Am I accepted? Do I matter? Do I matter? Every single one of us has an answer to that question. Some of you here this morning may be very confident about yourselves, and you think immediately, without thinking about it, of course I matter. Um, You're successful, you're making something of your life, or you're on your way to making something of your life. You feel very successful in this world, very confident in yourself. I matter. Others of you are here this morning, and you're not so sure. In fact, there are people here this morning, I mean, can we just be honest? Some of you, you hate yourselves. Or at the very least, there are people here this morning, we walk around with like this constant low-grade level of dissatisfaction and disappointment with ourselves and with our life. We feel like a failure. We feel like a loser. We, we are not so sure about the answer to that question, do I matter? But here's the thing. Every single one of us is looking for an answer to that question, do I matter? But that's actually not the deepest question. There's a question underneath that question. There's a deeper question. And the deeper question, the bigger question is this. It's not, do I matter? The real question is, how do I know that I matter? How do I know that I matter? That's the question that Paul is wrestling with in this passage. And that's the question that the gospel actually addresses in all of our, single, all of our lives. How do I know that I matter? You see, some people are full of confidence, Other people despise themselves. But the thing, the radical thing that the gospel shows us is that it shows us that both kinds of people feel the way they do because both of them have bought into the same false paradigm. We bought into the same false paradigm and the gospel gives us a completely different, a completely new paradigm. The question isn't, do I matter? We all want to know that we matter. We all want to know that our lives have worth and value and meaning and significance, that we're loved. We all want to know that we matter. The real question is, how do I know that I matter? That's the question that Paul is pressing in with this passage, and that's the question the gospel answers. And the way Paul answers that question is by pointing us to the cross. In this passage, Paul is answering the question by pointing us to the cross, and he shows us three things that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to see the centrality of the cross, the boast of the cross, and a life that's marked by the cross. Okay? The centrality the boast, and a life that's marked by the cross, all right? First, Paul shows us the centrality of the cross. So look at what he says in verse 14. He says, far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's a little hard to see, but this is actually very strong language. That phrase at the beginning, far be it from me, Uh, It's a little difficult to translate. Literally, it means may it never be, but that doesn't get anywhere near close enough to conveying the intensity of this phrase in the original language. A lot of translations, this is a, a phrase that Paul used actually quite frequently throughout his letters. Sometimes you'll see it translated, God forbid, which is not a literal translation of the phrase, but actually, at least it gets a little closer to conveying the intensity and the strength of the language that Paul is using here. In other words, Paul is saying there's only one thing necessary. God forbid that I would boast in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is there's only one thing that the gospel is all about. It's the cross. There's only one thing that's indispensable. It's the cross. There's only one thing that defines what the gospel is all about. It's the cross. That's what he's saying here. And here's why this is so important. If we were to walk out onto the street after the service today and ask your average city dweller, hey, what's the essence of Christianity? What's it all about? 
What's the essence of the gospel? It's very common to hear people say something like this. People will say, well, the really important thing is not all these theological beliefs, like sin or salvation or forgiveness or redemption or blood atonement, all these theological beliefs. That's not what's really important. The thing that matters is not what you believe. The thing that really matters is how you live. All religions teach different things. They have different beliefs, different traditions, rituals, symbols. They all have these things that they differ on. But all religions essentially teach the same thing, and it's the things that they all teach. That's what's really important. The thing that really matters is not what you believe. The thing that really matters is how you live. Many people would say that. May I gently but firmly say to you, that's not true. In fact, it can't be true. Not It can't possibly be true. Why? Here's why. It's because you can't dismiss one set of core beliefs without substituting another set of core beliefs. Let me show you what I mean. Um, Every worldview is a way of answering certain basic questions about life. We talk about this a lot here. Every worldview is a way of answering the same basic questions, okay? Two of the biggest questions are, what's wrong with the world? And what's the solution? Those are huge questions, and the way you answer those questions comprises what we would call your worldview. Your worldview is your view of ultimate reality. Whatever you believe about ultimate reality, that's your worldview, and every worldview is an attempt to answer those same basic questions. What's wrong with the world? What's the solution to the world's biggest problems? Here's the thing. The cross gives us very specific answers to those questions. But if you say what really matters is not what you believe, but how you live, you can't say that without asserting alternative answers to those questions. Especially that statement, it only matters how you live, that statement assumes certain things. And one of the main things it assumes is that whatever humanity's biggest problems are, that we actually have the power to fix it ourselves. You know what that is? That's a belief. That is a belief about ultimate reality. And that means that you can't dismiss one view of ultimate reality without substituting another view of ultimate reality. Or we could say it like this. You can't relativize one thing without making something else absolute. It just can't be done. It, It just isn't true to say that it doesn't matter what you believe. It only matters how you live. The real truth is that how you live always, always is the result of what you most deeply believe. Now, listen, I understand this actually makes people mad to say this, and I'm not saying this just to be inflammatory for the sake of being inflammatory. I want us to think. I want us to actually think about the assumptions that that drive the things we say, because this whole letter that Paul wrote is, is all about the essence of the gospel. And Paul is saying, there's only one gospel. The gospel can't just mean whatever you want it to mean. There's only one gospel, and I want you to understand it. So many people would say, look, I think the gospel is all about being a good person. It's all about how you live. Obey the golden rule. Obey the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Care for the poor, the sick, and the needy. That's what people would say the gospel is all about. Now, I'm not saying those things aren't important, and I'm certainly not saying Jesus didn't tell us to do those things. He did tell us to do them, and they are absolutely important. What I am saying, what Paul is saying, what the gospel is saying is that that's not the basis of the gospel. That is not the most important thing. The most important thing is not what Jesus told us to do. The most important thing is what Jesus did himself. That's the essence of the gospel. And and listen, we need to say one more thing about this before we move on. Um, You know, a lot of people would say, okay, 
I, I grant your point, and here's how I would do it. I would say, yeah, for Paul, for Paul, that was the essence of the gospel. Paul made a big deal about all these the- theological beliefs like the cross, forgiveness, sin, salvation, blood atonement, substitutionary sacrifice. Yeah, Paul believed the cross was the essence of the gospel. But, but Paul lived many, many years after Jesus, and Paul basically said, all this stuff is the essence of the gospel, but he lived so many years after Jesus... And he just added that stuff to the original teachings of Jesus. But Jesus, his original understanding of his life and his mission, it wasn't about all of that stuff. The essence of Jesus' original understanding of his mission was teaching us how to be better people. And again, I would say, we have to go back and see, is this really true? Because if you go to the Gospels, that's the narrative accounts of Jesus' life, and you look at, at what it says, what does Jesus himself say about his own understanding of his life work and his whole mission in this world? Did he come to teach people how to be better people? Was that the essence of what he was doing? No. So for instance, you go to Matthew chapter 16, for instance, and there's this very famous conversation where Jesus is on the road with his disciples and they're walking along and Jesus says, hey, who do you think I am? And Peter, in this flash of inspiration, says, Jesus, You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you got it. That's exactly who I am. Now let me tell you what I came to do. And from that moment on, over and over and over again in the gospels, Jesus keeps telling his disciples, the son of man must be crucified. The son of man must be crucified. The son of man must be crucified. Over and over and over again. That's what he came to do, to die. And it, listen, it's not just Jesus. The apostles themselves, when you look at the Gospels, those narrative accounts, how did they write those things? I mean, these were the people who knew Jesus. They were the ones who walked with Jesus, who lived with Jesus. They were the ones, if anybody in the world knew what the essence of Jesus was all about, they were the ones who knew because they were the ones who were with him. So when they wrote those Gospel accounts, what did they write? I mean, you look at them. These are not normal biographies. In the very beginning, there's a little bit about his birth, and that's only in two of them. And then there's a little bit more about three years of his life when he was doing his public ministry. And then there's a whole bunch of material, chapters upon chapters, that are all about the last week of this person's life. How's that for biography? If you were to pay money for a biography like that, you'd read it and you'd go, this is a lousy biography, I want my money back. It told me hardly anything about the person's life, and all it did was tell most of it was all about how the guy died. That is not a normal biography, because the essence of what Jesus came to do is not to teach us how to be better people. The essence of what he came to do was to die for us on the cross. That is the essence of the gospel. It's the very center of the gospel. It's the cross. So, As we move on, one of the things we need to see is that the essence of the gospel is not what we do, it's what Jesus did for us. And that actually leads us to the second point. We've seen just now the center uh, of the cross, the centrality of the cross. Secondly, we need to see the boast of the cross. Because what does everything we just said actually have to do with this question that we asked at the beginning? Remember the question? The question isn't, do I matter? The question is, how do I know that I matter? How do I know? That's a big question. What does this have to say to that question? It's very interesting that that the way Paul answers this question is he doesn't just give us an answer to the question. He also shows us all of the false ways we go about trying to get an answer to that question. So look with me. In verse 12, 
Paul says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. Then he goes on in verse 13 to say, their desire is to have you circumcised. Why? So that they may boast in your flesh. Now, who is this they that Paul is talking about? The reason Paul wrote this letter was because there were some false teachers who had come into the church in Galatia and they were preaching an alternative gospel. It it looked very similar to the gospel that Paul was preaching, but, but there were some very subtle differences and those differences made all the difference in the world. And they were very sneaky about this because they didn't say, look, it doesn't matter what you believe. They said, oh, it does matter what you believe. You need to have faith in Jesus in order to be saved. But they also said what really matters is how you live. And that if you really want to be saved, not only do you have to trust in Jesus, but you have to be a good person. You have to obey the whole law. You have to live a really good life. And the sign of your commitment to do all of that, they said, is that you will get circumcised. What is circumcision? Circumcision is a sign. It was Literally, it was a physical mark in, in a person's flesh. And that it, it was a sign of their commitment to live a really good life, a really holy life, a really religious life. It was a sign of their commitment to do that. Circumcision represents a whole approach to life. It's it's like a lens or an operating principle. It's a whole way of approaching life. And maybe the nearest possible equivalent we could say in our modern world would be to say that circumcision represents being a really good person, that that's what really counts. It doesn't matter what you believe. What matters is how you live. So in essence... There were really two Gospels being preached in Galatia. There was the Gospel Paul preached, which was the real Gospel, and there was the false Gospel that the false teachers were preaching. And we could put it like this. We could put it in a little formula, like a mathematical equation. Very simple. The Gospel Paul preached said this, faith plus salvation equals obedience. The Gospel the false teachers preached went like this. It said, faith plus obedience equals salvation. The gospel said that our obedience, the way we live, is actually a result of the gospel. It's a result of salvation. The false teachers were saying, no, 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 no. Your obedience, the way you live, is actually the basis of salvation. Those are two completely different approaches. Now, here's what I want us to see about this. As I just said, the nearest modern equivalent of circumcision, you could say it's being a good person. It's all about how you live. It's a commitment to really live a good life. Now look at verse 13. Paul says that approach to life, all right, circumcision, what matters is how you live. He says that approach, look at what he calls it. He says that's boasting in the flesh. Now that word boasting was another very important word for Paul. He used it quite a bit in his letters. What Paul meant by that word is boasting is whatever we put our confidence in. We all want an answer to that question. How do I know I matter? Your boast is whatever you point to (laughs) to get an answer to that question. That's your boast. It's whatever you put your confidence in. So when Paul says that circumcision is boasting in the flesh, what he means is that every human being needs an answer to the question, how do I know I matter? Therefore, every single human being, the default way of every human heart is to point to something in ourselves Maybe it's your looks, maybe it's your money, maybe it's being smart, maybe it's romantic attention, maybe it's your kids or your grades, maybe it's your commitment to a really good cause like standing up for the oppressed or your commitment to a political party, but whatever it is, 
Your boast, your confidence is in something. You point to something in yourself and you say, this is how I know that I matter. This is how I know that I'm worthy of love and belonging. We boast in the flesh. But here's the thing. You know, half of this room feels like you got a pretty good boast. There's a lot of successful people in this room. You feel very confident about yourselves. You're doing well in life. You're making something of your life. Half this room, if we ask, you know, do I matter? You'd say, yeah, I feel like I matter. I feel pretty confident. The other half of the room, not so sure. You feel like failures. You feel like losers half the time. You're always walking around wondering, I don't know. I'm not so sure that my life really matters. Now, here's the question. Why do both people feel the way they do, whether you're success or you're failure? Here's where Paul takes us deep. If you look at verse 15, Paul says, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Okay? Circumcision doesn't count. Neither does uncircumcision count. Neither of those things count. What does he mean by that? Well, think about it. What does circumcision mean? What what have we just said? Circumcision essentially means success. I'm living a good life. It's all about what I do. I'm being a good person. It's success. Circumcision represents success. Well, if that's the case, what does uncircumcision represent? You know, in in that culture in those days, um, Jewish people looked at uncircumcised people as being failures, moral failures, spiritual failures. In fact, in that culture, to call someone uncircumcised was an insult. It was a derogatory comment because it looked at people who were uncircumcised and said, you are a failure, a moral failure, a spiritual failure, a religious failure. Paul is saying, neither of those things count. Success counts for nothing. Failure counts for nothing. Why is that? He's saying, because both of those things are operating according to the same false paradigm. Every single person needs an answer to the question, how do I know My life matters. Therefore, every single person needs something that they can point to and say, this is how I know. Every single person needs something they can point to. It's their boast that they can point to and say, this is how I know that my life matters. It's like we're all walking around through life with a big measuring stick and it's constantly following us around. Do you ever feel like that? And it's always saying, don't mess up. Don't blow it. It's like it's constantly following us around. And, and, and you're living your life like you feel like we're constantly comparing ourselves to this measuring stick that's always following us around. And the stick may be different for different of us. As we said, it may be its looks. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's your moral or religious performance. We all have a different measuring stick. But the, the thing that's the same about all of us is that we all feel like our worth and value in this life depends on how well we live up to the standard. That's the way we get an answer to the question, how do I know my life matters? If we measure up to the standard, if we're living up, we feel good about ourselves. But if we don't measure up, if we don't live up, we feel horrible about ourselves. But either way, all of us, we either feel good or we feel bad because we all feel like we're the ones who have to live up to the standard in order to know that our life matters. And this is where the cross gives us a radically new basis for getting an answer to that question. Because when we ask the question, how do I know I matter? The way we answer it is by saying, well, how well do I live up to the standard? That's how I know I matter. But the cross comes to us and says, Jesus is the standard. He is the ultimate, infinite standard of all beauty, ultimate beauty and perfection and excellence and goodness. Jesus doesn't just live up to the standard. Jesus is the standard. 
And this standard, who sat on the throne of heaven from all eternity, this standard came to earth. And he was suffered, he was mocked, he was rejected, he was stripped naked, he was beaten, and, and he was nailed to a cross. And at the very moment of his death, this standard, the one who mattered more than anything or anyone else in all of creation, who was treasured and cherished by the heavenly Father, the God of the universe, the one who had all of that, looked up at his Father in that last moment of agony and death and cried out looking for love and acceptance and all he got was darkness and rejection and condemnation. Why? We all want to get an answer to that question. How do I know my life matters? Do you want to know that you matter, that you really matter? The cross says to each and every one of you that the way you can know, the way you can really know that you matter is not how well you live up to the standard, but the fact that the standard himself gave up his life for you. That's how you know. That is a radically different way of getting an answer to that question. It's not about what you do. It's about what he did. That, friends, that is a love and a value and a significance that is infinitely beyond anything that we could ever possibly hope to achieve for ourselves by our own mere performance. And even more than that, that is a love and a value and a significance that we can never lose, that can never be taken away from you, no matter how well you succeed or how badly you mess up, because that is a love and a value and a significance that's not based on you to begin with. It's not about what you do. It's about what he did. Do you realize what this would do for your life? First of all, the cross, think about it. The cross is the antidote against all pride and superiority. The cross humbles you because the cross says to each and every one of us, this is how lost you are. This is how alienated from God you are. This is how, can we use the word, how sinful you are, that, that you have absolutely no hope of redeeming yourself in your own power and that you need an intervention. You need the God of the universe himself to come to earth and do it for you. Listen, that is offensive in our world. That is offensive in our culture. It sounds so many people, they never get any farther than that right there because they immediately say, wow, that is just so negative. That is so negative about humanity. That is so negative about people. I can't believe in anything that's so negative about human beings, do, do you understand what sin really means? To say that we're lost, to say that we're sinners, the cross says this, the cross says sin does not define humanity. It distorts humanity from being the people that God created them to be. Calling you a sinner does not define you. It distorts you. Sin is not the definition of humanity, it's the distortion of humanity. The humanity, the glory, the beauty, the excellence, the perfection that God created every single one of us for. It's kind of like, you know, if you went to Paris to go to the Louvre and you're going to go look at the Mona Lisa, if you can get past the crowds, and, and you get to the painting and, and there she is, the Mona Lisa, this famous masterpiece, and all of a sudden everybody's gasping, oh, there's a huge paint smudge on the Mona Lisa, is that paint smudge on the Mona Lisa, is that an insult to Mona Lisa? Yeah, it is. But does that negate the value of the Mona Lisa? No. In fact, it calls for her restoration. Friends, the cross says to you that you are God's Mona Lisa, 
that you are a masterpiece, that you are God's work of art, and that he is so committed to your restoration that he is determined to wipe that smudge off of your life. Now, here's the difference. Mona Lisa wasn't responsible for that smudge in the illustration I just used. We are responsible for the smudges and the distortions in our life. But God's love for you is so great that he's determined to see the smudge removed and to see you renewed. That's what the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of the cross actually says to us. Far from being too negative about humanity, do you see this? Far from being too negative, the doctrine of sin and therefore the cross actually says it is a jaw-dropping affirmation of the inestimable um, and incomprehensible worth and glory and beauty for which God created every single human being and to which he is determined to bring every single human being. Therefore, the cross is not only the antidote for all pride and superiority, it's also the antidote for shame and despair. Do you see that? It's kind of like, you know, when you think about it, you realize, what is God's end game for humanity? What is his end game for your life? Look at verse 15. Paul says, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Remember what we said about that. It's saying success doesn't count, but neither does your failures count. None of that counts. In other words, God is not trying to make you a better version of the you that you already are. That is not his end game. What is? Look at what, what he says. Neither circumcision counts nor uncircumcision, but a new creation That's God's goal for your life, a new creation. What does that mean? It's like a caterpillar. You know, what's the end game for a caterpillar? Is it to be a new and improved version of the caterpillar it already is? No. The end game for a caterpillar is to become a butterfly. God's end game for your life is not to make you a new and improved version of you. It's to make you a whole new you. Jesus didn't come to improve you. He came to remake you. Friends, let me put it this way. If the, if the best you that you can be is a you that you can imagine, you're selling yourself far short. Jesus didn't come to improve you. He came to remake you, to make you a whole new you. So that when you look at your life, whether you're succeeding or failing, you look at all of that stuff, you say, it doesn't, it doesn't count, it doesn't define me. The cross defines me. The cross says, you're not defined. The answer to the question is not how well you live up to the standard, but that the standard himself gave up his life for you. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the centrality of the cross, that the gospel, the essence of the gospel is not about what we do, but what Jesus did. And we've seen the boast of the cross, that the the cross actually gives us a whole new boast, a whole new something else to point to in order to know that our lives matter, that has nothing to do with us. But that leads to our last point. What would a life that is marked by the cross actually look like? It's far too much to talk about, but let me offer you just a couple of things. They're both in this passage. You know, in in verse 17, Paul says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Now, he's almost certainly referring to like literal scars that he would have received as a result of preaching the gospel. Paul, if you read his life, I mean, he was beaten, he was stoned, he was whipped. I mean, the guy had literal scars on his body from preaching the gospel. And it's especially meaningful, and I think there was a deliberate comparison or contrast, really, when Paul said this, because what's circumcision? It's a literal mark in the flesh. Paul's saying, I've got marks in my flesh, but they mean something completely different than what those marks mean. 
So what does a life that's marked by the cross actually look like? Let me offer you just two thoughts very briefly. First, a life marked by the cross is a life marked by peace. Look at what Paul says in verse 16. He says, as for all who walk by this rule, that means the gospel. He says, peace and mercy be upon them. Now understand something. When Paul says peace and mercy be upon them, this is not some mindless benediction like we're just saying something for the sake of saying it sounds good. No, when Paul says peace, he means peace. What is the peace of the gospel? If you go back to verse 14, Paul said, he's talking about his own life. He says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. When he says that the world is crucified to him and he to the world, what he means is that the world no longer has any control over him. The world doesn't define him anymore, and the same is true for you when the gospel defines you. Do you know what this means? It means that you're free from wondering how you can get an answer to the question, how do I know my life matters? Worldly success, what does worldly success do? It's great if you get it, but it it makes you driven and anxious, right? I mean, you're constantly looking over your shoulder to see if someone's gaining on you. You feel like you can never take your foot off the gas. Worldly success makes you driven and anxious. Worldly failure makes you ashamed and disheartened because the world looks at you and the world just discounts you. The world rejects you. The world ignores you. The world just couldn't care less about you. Worldly success, worldly failure, both of them, neither of those things lead to real peace in your life. But when you're defined by Jesus' death on the cross, that gives you a whole new boast. That gives you a whole new confidence. When you're defined by the world, you have no peace because you're either succeeding or you're a failure, driven, anxious, disheartened, and ashamed. No peace, but when you're defined by the cross, you're no longer defined, you're no longer controlled by the world. That means you've got peace. So when the world looks at you and says, oh, great job, your success, keep it up. Or when the world looks at you and says, what a failure, what a loser, can't believe you would call yourself, what a sorry excuse for a human being you are. When the world looks at you and says either of those things, you you say, no, that doesn't define me. You don't point to that as your reason for knowing that your life matters. You point to Jesus. And you say, there's my righteousness. There's my boast. Friends, the cross, the peace of the gospel does not remove your boasting. It relocates it. It relocates it. You say, there's my righteousness, Jesus. And he gives that to me. He gives me his worth. He gives me his value. So that no matter what the world says about me, none of that matters. And when you are no longer defined by the world, you're no longer controlled by the world, you're no longer, you're free from all of that stuff. You finally have peace. So that's the first thing. A life marked by the gospel is a life marked by peace. But secondly, a life marked by the gospel is a life marked by, you're not gonna like it, persecution. Look at what Paul says again in um, verse 12. He says, the false teachers, they, were, they didn't want to preach the cross. Why? Because they didn't want to be persecuted. Paul, on the other hand, he says, he bears on his body the marks of Jesus. If you're a Christian here in America, um, listen, your life is not at risk for being a Christian. We need to say that. And when Christians in this country complain that they're being persecuted. Friends, not only is that an insult to all the other Christians around the world who really are losing their lives for the sake of the gospel, it is incredibly tone deaf to the culture around us. 
We are not being persecuted in this country. But here's what I would say for us. At the very least, no matter where you live, you should bear on your body the marks of Jesus. That means at the very least, we should be willing to, what do we risk in our culture? Our reputation. If your life is no longer defined by what the world says about you, if there's true gospel peace in your life, what does it matter what the world says about you? Whether it affirms you or or castigates you and casts you down. It doesn't matter. What's a little hit to your reputation? What's a little dent to your reputation? What's losing a little bit of face? We don't don't take risks for the gospel so often because we're afraid of what the world is going to say about us. We're afraid people are going to reject us or laugh at us or ridicule us or maybe just ignore us. But when the gospel defines you, when you have that gospel peace in your life, it doesn't matter what the world says. And we can be willing to maybe take a hit to our reputation, maybe be willing to allow the world to laugh at us a little bit for the sake of this message that is so radically reorienting and radically redefining. But let me say one more thing about this because it's not just you know a risk to your reputation. You know That's one way that... that, that we bear on our bodies the marks of Jesus. I would say even more than this. Um, and this goes probably more for those of us here this morning who are white or educationally privileged or economically privileged or all three. But let me suggest this. The church must excel at showing solidarity with the poor and the powerless. The church must excel at showing solidarity with the poor and the powerless of this world. Because you know what that feels like? No, that's not persecution. Let's be really clear about that. But in this world we live in, where we're so accustomed to having all these little consumer comforts that we love, and in this world we live in, where we're so accustomed to you know, having certain levels of cultural power, to give up even just a little bit of that comfort and that power, that would feel like suffering. That would feel a little bit like persecution. You would be bearing in your body just a little bit the marks of Jesus to give up some of that comfort and that power in order to show solidarity with the poor and the powerless in this world because that's where Jesus calls us, to follow him. No, you are not defined by how you live. You are not defined by how successful you are. You're not even defined by how much you suffer for the sake of the gospel. That is not your basis for God's love and acceptance in your life, but it is the response to that love and acceptance in your life. And if we're not living like that, then it shows maybe we haven't really embraced the gospel as fully as we thought we had. We must identify with the poor and the powerless in this world. We must stand up and be counted with them and be willing to identify with them. That is one of the primary ways, I think especially for us here in America, when we have so much comfort and so much cultural power, one of the primary ways that we actually follow our crucified Savior. Friends, the center of the gospel is the cross. It's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus did. The essence of the gospel completely revolves around this Savior, this standard, this perfect standard, who doesn't demand that you live up to him, but instead gave up his life for you. That defines you. That gives you a peace that the world can't possibly offer you. And that begins to remake you, to reproduce in you the same kind of sacrificial love in your life, to make you not just a new and improved version of the old you, but a whole new you by reproducing in you the same sacrificial love that our Savior gave up for us so that you can be a vessel of that love and that life to the world around you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the cross. 
And we pray that you would help us to keep redirecting, even as we come to the end of this series, Lord, to keep refocusing and redirecting our eyes and our hearts and our lives back to the cross, back to the gospel, back to the essence and the center of it all. That it's not about what we do, it's about what Jesus did. And when we focus on that, that transforms everything we do. But we have to start there. Lord Jesus, help us to always, always, always center our lives on your cross, on your death, by which you have shown us how much you love us, how much you value us, and how much we matter. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.